All right. Well, as we get ready to look at the word together in the book of Acts, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us as, as we tune our ears to his word. Lord, I thank you for the, the, the book of Acts. I thank you for the opportunity to work through it together as a church in the months to come. I ask that your Holy Spirit would bless our ears with the ability to hear what you have for us this morning. Bless our minds to understand your word. And I pray that you would stir us, even as we um, work through these verses with, with things that are practical takeaways for our own lives, maybe even things that I didn't think to say but that strike us in various ways. Lord, I just ask that you would help us. May your word bear fruit in our lives as we want to all grow in following Jesus as king. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to direct your attention a second to the bulletin. On the back of the bulletin, I've got a detailed outline. You've got the main idea for the morning and, as usual, the outline. So you can take notes there. And I want to make a little plug for our time before church. We gather while the kids are in Kids Bible Club at 930 we circle up around the table out there, and we pray together for about 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. Anybody who wants to can pray. Um, we don't share prayer requests unless there's like something really urgent. We just go right into prayer and pray for God's blessing on our time. Um, and then we talk for 20 minutes or so about the previous week's sermon and sometimes a little bit about this week. So. Again, it's supposed to be a really informal time. Um, show up if you can, and uh, we would love to have you be a part of that each week. And there's also coffee, although we drained it. Sorry, Jacob. This morning. <laughs> so that is at uh, 9:30, and um, and then uh, yeah, well, one of the one of the reasons I'm giving a handout. Yes, it helps you. This morning as we work through the passage, but then if you tuck this in your Bible and then you come to sermon discussion, you'll be like, oh yeah, that's what it was about. Oh, I had a question about that. So that's the goal for these handouts. All right, we're going to start off with the introduction to the book of Acts this morning. The introduction is in verses 1 to 14. Before we do that, though, I want to remind you very briefly of what we saw together in our Acts Overview Sermon that I preached a few weeks ago. Now, when you came in, Richard was handing out uh, the brochures, or whatever you want to call it, and if you didn't get two, there's probably extra ones over there. You can pick one up on your way out. There's one from three weeks ago, I guess now, where I outlined the whole book of Acts, basically, and what, what Acts is about and how it fits with the Gospel of Luke. Because... Acts is actually part two of a two-volume work. You could call it Luke-Acts. Luke-Acts, right? Everything in the Gospel of Luke, part one, builds up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Starting with his birth and building, building, building towards Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to give his life, then rise, and then Acts Luke actually ends with the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Then, part two, or volume two, starts in the same place. Acts starts with Jesus 
getting ready to ascend and ascending into heaven. So, uh, everything in Luke flows towards the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and everything in Acts flows out from the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And it's like if you could picture Luke and Acts as, as ripples moving outward from a big can of uh, rock or whatever thrown into the lake. And the rock is Jesus rose and ascended to the throne. And all the ripples roll out from there. That's what Luke Acts is about. Luke wrote this two-part volume to a man named uh, Theophilus, which means friend of God. And he wrote it so that Theophilus would know with greater certainty the truth of the things that he had been taught about Jesus. So this two-part volume is meticulously researched by Luke. He chased everybody down. Mary, I want your account. Paul, I want your account. Well, he traveled with Paul for a long time. Um, he went, he was like a reporter writing a story, a two-part story, and he turned over every stone, talked to everyone, and got the facts about Jesus. The main point of this volume, Acts, is this. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus, he's expanded his rule and reign on earth, and he's doing it through the verbal witness of the church, the word that they're sharing about Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus, I hope maybe over the next year you'll be able to memorize this, or come kind of close to it. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus. He's not dead, he's on the throne. He's, he is expanding his rule as king through the witness of the church by the power of of the Holy Spirit. And the key verse for Acts that sets up the program for the whole book is the one we're memorizing as a church. Acts 1.8. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, here's the ripple, in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the earth. And the whole book of Acts starts and follows this pattern. Starts in Jerusalem, in chapter 8, moves to Judea and Samaria, and chapter 13, moves to the Gentile world, and in chapter 20 and 21, it moves to Rome and to the outermost parts of the earth. And like we ended three weeks ago in that sermon, and it's on Facebook, if you want to, if you didn't get to listen to it, you can go back on Facebook and find, I think I pinned it to the top of our page, actually. The New Creation Church page, I pinned the introduction sermon. Because it really sets the stage for everything that's coming. Acts, what this book of Acts does, it reverses the tragic story of the Bible. Where Adam, the first king of the world, led creation into a train wreck. Now a new king's on the throne. A new Adam. And he's going to reverse everything. He's waging a mighty global war against Satan and all who serve him through the power of his spirit and the preaching of his word. And he is going to bring all the nations to the ends of the earth into obedience to his rule and reign when he finally returns again. So, that's a little flyover um, of 
what we saw three weeks ago. Now we're going to be diving right into the introduction. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Luke begins this way. He says, In my former book, Theophilus, friend of God, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So remember what the former book was? Luke. So in my former book that we call Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the way it ends in Acts 20, Luke 24, until he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Here's the king talking about his rule and reign. On one occasion, verse 4, while he was eating with them, by the way, eating would be one way to prove that you weren't a ghost. While he was eating with them, breaking bread, having table fellowship, literally it says, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father that he promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to fix what's broken with the nation? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You are going to be witnesses of the King and to his reign, and you're going to do this in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. The Samaritans would be the, like some of the scattered tribes of Israel that needed to be restored. You're going to witness to them and then to the ends of the earth. This thing's going global, according to Jesus. After he said this, then he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud taken from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. <laughs> They're just standing there. You know? <laughs> Maybe we'll see him again. <laughs> Maybe he's going to, I don't know, you know, what would you, what would you think when this king, you know, then you just ate with him, he just said he's going to return right now, what, 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 what are you going to think? Well, the angels show up, two men in white, just like at the end of Luke's gospel, they show up at the tomb and tell the, tell the ladies there what's going on, right? They show up. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with 
Jesus' brothers. So this morning, we're going to walk through these 14 verses, and we're going to do it in three steps. Okay? First, we're going to look at the enthronement of King Jesus. The king takes the throne, ascending through the clouds to the right hand of God the Father. And there, on the throne, Jesus is the Lord that is prayed to and called upon all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Okay? So when the writers of Acts call upon the Lord and pray to the Lord and preach about the Lord, they are preaching and teaching and praying to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the book of Acts. Second, we'll look at the mission of King Jesus. The Lord who's on the throne has a mission. It's, it's to expand his rule and reign as king to the ends of the earth. And here, when we talk about this mission, we'll look at what the mission is, we'll look at who Jesus expects to accomplish this mission, and we'll look at how they're going to do it. Third, we're going to look at the return of King Jesus, promised by the angels. So, the enthronement, the mission, and the return of the king, which is the name of a popular movie, right? The Return of the King. Spoken with a Christian. These are uh, pictures that he gave us of what our hope is. The main idea is this. The main idea for the sermon. The risen and ascended King Jesus will advance his kingly reign over the earth until he returns. So let's jump right into point one. The enthronement of the king. In the writings of the prophet Daniel, we preach through Daniel, Daniel has a vision in which he is standing in the throne room of heaven itself. And Daniel sees someone coming through the clouds. So it's like Daniel's up in heaven's throne room. I say up. He's in a different dimension of reality. That's the way the biblical authors conceived of it, um, spoke about it. Daniel's in heaven's throne room, and he sees a human one, one like a son of Adam, a son of man, coming up through the clouds into heaven to receive something from God. Listen, listen to Daniel 7, 13 to 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me, Daniel said, was one like a son of man, son of Adam, Adam, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and he was led into his presence. He, this son of man, Coming from the earth, this earth creature, one like an earth creature, literally he says, he's, he's like one, he's coming through the clouds and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And this is no mere human. Listen to what Daniel says of him. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. God, the Creator, does not share His worship with anyone. Therefore, this one like a son of man must be equal with the Father. And this is where we begin to get our doctrine of what we call the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. They are worshiping this one like a son of man who passes through the clouds. 
His dominion, Daniel says, his rule is in everlasting dominion, Daniel 7, 14, that will not pass away. Every king, every ruler who has ever existed in the history of humanity, his rule has ended. Vladimir Putin will have his rule brought to an end, one way or another. Just as millions of other rulers and dictators and presidents and kings, but not this guy. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom will be one that will never be destroyed. He better be a good king if it's going to be forever. Right? And the whole story of the Bible is he is. He is a good king. In the book of Acts, the gospel writer Luke, who's writing all this down, he wants you to know that Jesus is this man from Daniel 7, who's ascending through the clouds and who's taken up his heavenly dominion over all earth, like Adam was supposed to do in the garden, ruling over creation and failed. Jesus is the son of Adam, is doing what Adam was supposed to do. He's doing it, and he is worshipped. That's how Luke ends the Gospel of Luke. If you would like, you could look there. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 50 to 52. Listen to this. When, when he, Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands like a priest, <laughs> Like Aaron would lift his hands up, and he blessed them. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Maybe he prayed Aaron's blessing, where Aaron would lift up his hands. We don't know what he said, but he blessed them. And while he's blessing them, the high priest is taken up into heaven. He, he's taken into heaven. Verse 52 of Luke chapter 24. Listen to Daniel. It's a clear echo of Daniel here. Then, after he's ascending into heaven through the clouds, they worshipped him. Daniel 7, 14. All peoples in every nation worship him. Jesus is being worshipped as he's ending, ascending through the clouds, calling out blessing. The blessing Adam lost. He's calling it out on these humans who are worshipping him. Acts begins with the same scene, but it tells us more of the story. It tells us the afterwards. Acts 1.9, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And as they return to Jerusalem, we see the disciples start to pray to this risen Christ, the Lord who is in heaven. Prayers like Acts 1 verse 24, when they cry out, Lord, you know everyone's heart. How do I know that this Lord is Jesus? Well, look back in Acts 1 verse 6, 7, and 8. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Only a few verses later, they're praying to the Lord. Lord, you know everyone's heart. And on and on throughout the book of Acts, they're calling on the Lord. It's the Lord Jesus. We'll, we'll see in a minute when Stephen or when um, Paul, Saul, is converted. He hears Jesus from heaven. He says, who are you, Lord? 
Jesus is the Lord. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look briefly at two encounters that humans have in the book of Acts with the risen and enthroned Christ. And what I want you to see is that as Luke is writing this volume, he wants you and he wants me as we read to understand that everything that's going on in the pages of this book and in your life, it's going on under the rule and the reign of the risen king. So, Acts 7, 55-56, Stephen, an early follower of Jesus, a deacon, he's being stoned to death for his faith in Christ. He's dying. And as this man, who's been faithful to the point of death, is dying, we read these words. 7, Acts 7, 55-56, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says to the guys that are killing him, look, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man, Daniel 7, <laughs> standing at the right hand of God. Stephen says, I see Daniel 7, your king, guys, the rightful king of Judah, the, the son of David, who you should be worshiping, O fellow Israelites, he's risen and reigning in heaven. Jesus is worthy of worship. He's in control, even as Stephen gives his life for him on earth. Later on, one of the men that was there helping stone Stephen to death, he's a man named Saul. And Saul has his own encounter with the Jesus of heaven. In Acts 9, Saul is on a journey with some of his buddies to go drag Christians to prison. But in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 6, we read this. As this Saul guy near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light flashed from heaven around him, and Saul hits the deck. He falls to the ground, and a voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, who are you, Lord? He knows. And this Lord says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When you touch my people, you're touching me. You're hurting me. Now get up, says Jesus, and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So the king of the universe says, go into the city, and I'm going to tell you what you need to do. And Saul says, yes, Lord. Jesus takes a persecutor and makes him into a preacher. Right here. Saul encounters the mighty King Jesus, and his life is never the same after this. Have you ever been driving one way? This happens to me all the time. You're driving one way down the road, and then you realize you weren't really listening to GPS or your GPS 
volume was off and you are way past your turn, you're going the wrong way and you have to do a 180, and turn and go back the way you came. Or maybe you're walking in the woods and you are certain you know where you're going and then you pull your GPS out and you say, oh my goodness, I have to go the complete opposite direction. I thought I could see. I thought I knew the way, but I was blind even while I saw. Well, Saul does a 180. He suddenly realized that Stephen, who he watched die, wasn't making the vision up when Stephen was being stoned. Jesus was on heaven's throne. Daniel 7 had happened. And Israel's king, the son of David, the lion from the tribe of Judah, Jesus, the Messiah, had been enthroned. And Saul had been blind to it, along with all the other leaders of Jerusalem. Saul thinks he can see, but he's blind to who Jesus is. Then... He has an encounter with the risen Christ. In fact, and this is the irony of it, Saul thinks he can see, but he's blind to who Jesus is. So Jesus blinds him so that he can see who Jesus is. So everything about Acts has to be understood from this perspective. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Daniel 7 has happened. Jesus is enthroned right now. Ruling, And his reign will have no end. He's equal with God the Father. He's receiving worship. He deserves the worship of all the nations. He's commanding angels, sending them down to give instructions to his disciples. He's building his kingdom to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' mission, which we're going to look at next in the introduction of Acts. The mission of King Jesus. His mission is to expand his rule, his reign as king, his kingdom, to the ends of the earth. This world has spiraled totally out of control since the Garden of Eden. Adam, the first ruler of creation, the first human put in charge, ruined everything. But the last Adam, Jesus, will restore all things. And what we'll see in Acts 1, 1 1-14 is who will accomplish this mission of Jesus and how. So, look at Acts 1, 1 1-8. I'll just read this again. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while... He was eating with them. He gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but a few days from now you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the time or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's Jesus' plan. You will witness. And the you specifically here is the apostles of Jesus, 11, soon to be 12, but they represent the whole church. 
And this Jesus here tells them, this is how Israel's restoration is going to begin to happen. The 12 apostles of Jesus, remember there's 11 and there's about to be 12. We'll look at that next week. The 12 apostles will function like 12 leaders of the new tribes of Israel, the restored 12 tribes who've been scattered among the nations and are in disarray. And they're all united now under a new king, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who's defeated death, ascended the throne, the son of David, ruling and reigning forever. Okay? And now you have 12 men who are going to reassemble, restore the kingdom to Israel. How are they going to do it? Well, they don't know the whole timeline, but they're going to start by witnessing to the king and to his reign, starting in Jerusalem, moving to the scattered tribes in Samaria and Judea, and then going global, that the ends of the earth may turn and worship the king. So who is going to accomplish it? It's going to be the apostles under the leadership of Jesus. This language of being Jesus' witnesses, or God's witnesses, it comes from the prophet Isaiah. In fact, almost everything that Luke is writing here borrows language from the prophet Isaiah. Now, we're not going to be able to unpack all of this this morning. So I'm just going to look at two passages with you. And you could turn there if you'd like, or you could just listen along. Isaiah, in Isaiah 43, we read that God is talking to Israel, his people. He calls them, as a whole nation, his servant. Now, we need to pause here for a second. Israel, as a whole nation of individuals, is God's servant, or servants. God tells Pharaoh, in Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23, Yeah, Israel's serving you as slaves, O Pharaoh? Let my people go that they may serve me. Okay? So they become his servants as he saves them from slavery to Pharaoh. Then, so Israel's God's servants, and in Isaiah, this whole section, Isaiah 40 to 66, God talks about Israel as his servants, but there's also one member of Israel's nation who God calls his servant. And in his scroll, Isaiah the prophet switches back and forth between the language of servants plural and servant singular. One servant. And it can get a little complicated or complex. You have to track with it carefully. But the servant, the singular servant, the one guy we call the servant, he's a leader and he's a savior of the servants. Okay? This is Isaiah's vision. The servant saves the servants. Okay? Now, this concept, Isaiah didn't come up with it. It's from the book of Exodus. Okay? In the book of Exodus, um, we see that Moses is called God's servant. Exodus 14, verse 31. And he leads Israel, the whole nation of people called to be God's servants. Not Pharaoh's servants now, but God's servants. And the servant leads the servants through death, certain death in the Red Sea, to life on the other side and ultimately towards the promised land. A servant leads, a servant saves the servants on God's behalf. That's the whole book of Exodus. 
That's what Isaiah's predicting, that God is going to do this again now. Because that first servant, everything has spiraled out of control since the days of Moses. And Israel as a nation is in rebellion. We need a new Moses. We need a new exodus out of slavery to sin and all this. Isaiah's going to talk about all this in his letter and his prophecy. So Isaiah 43, and I'm going to ask Gary, uh, could you clip the slide? just want to bring this image up. Okay, there's the servant with his outstretched arm leading the servants through the Red Sea, bringing them deliverance. If you want to understand Isaiah 40 to 66, that whole section, the servant saves the servants with his outstretched arm. Okay? You ever wonder in Isaiah 53, which we love to quote, you can go to the blank side, Gary. In Isaiah 53, we love to quote that because it's about Jesus and his suffering. And it says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Why does God call Jesus an arm that saves? Well, it's because it goes back to this story. Moses, God's servant, is the sign of God's deliverance with his outstretched arm over the sea, splitting it in half. And so the servant saves the servants with an outstretched arm. That's what Isaiah is all about. And we read Isaiah 43, God says of his servant Israel, he's going to gather them as a whole nation back to himself once more. And he says literally, he's going to do it, Isaiah 43, verse 6, from the ends of the earth. That's the language of Acts. From the ends of the earth, where they've all been scattered because of their rebellion against him, he's going to gather them back to himself. And as a group, all his servants, chapter 43, verse 10, God says, you are going to be my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. So Luke's language of witness comes here. The servants are going to be witnesses to what God has done. And they are going to be gathered under the rule of this new servant, Moses, this new Moses, Jesus, from the ends of the earth. A little bit later, Isaiah 49, verse 5 to 6, we read more about this individual human who will be like a new Moses, okay? Um, and Isaiah writes, he says, the servant, speaking in the fir first person, the servant is speaking here, and he says, and now the Lord says, Isaiah 49, 5 to 6, and now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to himself and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. So notice, God, this, God is speaking to the servant and saying, just to bring Israel back to God, that's too small of a thing. For just the servant to bring the servants, the Israelites, back to God, that's too small. No, think bigger. I will also make you, O servant, a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So God's servant Jesus is the new Moses that Isaiah is describing. He's not just going to bring Israel back to God. But he's going to be a light for Gentiles, like us. That the salvation of God, his rescue plan, would reach America. <laughs> would reach the ends of the earth. 
And the ones who are going to carry on the mission of the servant of God will be his witnesses. You are my witnesses, says Isaiah, to these things. And they will accomplish this mission first by preaching to the Jews scattered throughout the ancient world in Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And the way they'll do it is by witnessing to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And the way that they will do it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now there's lots of Lots of prophecies in the Old Testament that say that the restoration of Israel is going to be accompanied by an outpouring of God's life-giving spirit. Restoration will only happen when God pours his spirit out. But one key place is Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30, 15. The prophet Isaiah, in context, he's describing how bad things have gotten for God's people. He says things are a train wreck because they've rebelled against God. This is way before Jesus okay, comes. But then he says something's going to happen. Things are going to be bad until, Isaiah 30, 15, until the Spirit is poured out on us from on high. Hear the pouring language? Like a, a new flood. And the desert becomes a fertile field. And the fertile field seems like a forest. Imagine the Sahara starting to turn into a beautiful forest. The desert turning into a fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace, and its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. This is all poetic imagery of restoration. The desert becomes like the Garden of Eden. You remember what the disciples asked Jesus in Acts 1? Will you restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? And Jesus' answer is, you don't know the timeline, but you are going to be witnesses of my salvation to the ends of the earth, that the nations would come under my kingship, and I'm going to pour out the Isaiah 30 spirit upon you to bring about your restoration and give you life and strength. The powerful spirit brings about restoration, but it's not complete yet. And this brings us to the third and final point this morning, the return of King Jesus. The whole of Christian life is described in the book of Acts as living between the ascension or the enthronement of Jesus and the return of King Jesus when all things will be restored. Jesus is aiming at full, complete restoration. Have you ever restored something? We as a church restored this building. It had fallen into a terrible state of disrepair, and we took something that was broken and we improved it. Jesus takes broken things and restores them. He takes people who are dead, and one day he will raise them all to life. And we, right now, live in the in-between stage, between the enthronement of the king and his future coming. This is what Many Bible students over the years have called the already, but the not yet. Jesus has come. He's king already. But the fullness of what Jesus will accomplish is not yet. Jesus is building his church, and his building project is still underway. It's not yet complete. So there's three questions, three things that Acts answers for us about the return of Christ. We'll work through them. First, when will Jesus return? 
And the answer is nobody knows. See that in verses 6 to 8? Then the disciples gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, are you going to be Israel's king on earth right now and fix everything that's broken? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So we've already looked at the mission statement, but just notice here the, the timing of things. The timing of full restoration is not for the disciples to know. The Father has fixed the times and dates, and we don't know them. So, I want to encourage you, don't guess. Okay? Church history, the 2,000 years that the Christian church has been a thing, it is filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples and writings of people who guessed. Godly people! Wow. This is usually how it goes. Did you see the news? Did you see the news? It's bad. You know what? Things are getting worse. Things are worse. This is a more godless place than it was 50 years ago, 70 years ago. We, we are falling apart. The time is coming soon, right? Time was the end. You know, things have been getting progressively better, worse, better, worse, better, worse, better, worse for 2,000 years, okay? Right? In depending on what nation you look at, okay? And the world doesn't get progressively better or worse. It just wobbles back and forth, as many have said. And so, for example, um, look 500 years ago. Think things are getting worse? 500 years ago, Europe was constantly at war, and half of Europe died in the bubonic plague. Okay, maybe not half. Nobody really knows, because we didn't have records. Half the population, or almost, died. That's pretty bad. Do you think people thought Jesus' return was close then? Yeah. Any day now. Any day. We don't know. We don't know when Jesus is going to come. Things are going to be bad, Jesus said. But there will be good things too. There will be mighty seasons of gospel advance, like when 3,000 people get baptized in one day. Right? And there will be times when 3,000 Christians get murdered for their faith in Jesus, like in France with the persecution of the French Huguenots. Thousands died. Any other day. Nobody knows the day, the hour. But we do know how Jesus will return. He'll return just as he left. Acts 1, 9-11. He was taken up before their eyes, and the angels say, listen, he's going to come back the same way that you saw him go. And when he does appear, he will restore all things. I'll leave you with the words of Peter on that note. Peter, in one of his first sermons ever, this fisherman turned preacher, by his encounter with the risen Christ, talk about a job change, catches fish, and now he's preaching to crowds. He says, Acts 3, 19-21, Repent then, 
and turn to God. He's speaking to Jewish people, trying to get them to come back, trying to restore them to their king. Return to God, repent, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Wait, I thought he already sent Jesus. Oh, but Jesus is enthroned. Now, he writes in verse 21, Acts 3, 21, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. Not just the kingdom to Israel, but all things. As Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. Not just this little slice of land in Palestine, but the whole creation will belong to the king of the Jews. And the saints of God with Christ will gain the whole creation. So, in conclusion, the risen and ascended King Jesus will advance his kingly reign over earth until he returns. And we live between the already of Christ's ascension and the not yet of Christ's return. The in-between. And I want to use just a simple illustration as we close. An illustration for application. I was trying to do this earlier at our sermon discussion time. If I want to keep this pen upright, okay, something upright, and I have, I can anchor it, I've got some string to anchor it to, would, I don't want it to fall over. Am I going to be best served by tying one string to it or two? Two, right? you got to have it under tension. Like if you want it, you're, you plant an apple tree and you want it to stay straight, you don't just tie one rope to it, it'll go like that, right? You tie two, so it stays up straight. You want it under constant tension. You want the ropes to be tight. We as Christians live in, our, our life right now is a life lived in tension. Constant tension between the in-between, between the already of Christ's enthronement as king and the not yet of his return to restore all things fully. If you don't have those two ropes on that pen holding it tight or that apple tree, it will fall over when wind blows, when things get shaken up. You want tension. As Christians, if we only have the hope of Christ's enthronement, and we only know that he's king, he's king, when life hits the fan, and we don't have the other hope of his return, we're going to say, wait, Jesus, um, I'm tethered to the hope that you're king. I'm tethered to the hope that you are enthroned. Why is my life falling apart? Why is this world so broken? What's wrong? If you're the king, if you're in charge, if you're ruling, what? You're a bad king. Because life is a mess. What's going on, Jesus? Why did Stephen get stoned if he saw you enthroned as king? We need the other hope to keep us steady, to keep us anchored in place. The hope that the king is coming again. And he's going to restore all things. This will keep us steady on our mission. For Jesus in this life. 
we have an unshakable hope of a life to come. On one side of history, we are anchored to something that happened in the past. Verifiable. Jesus died in Jerusalem. He rose in Jerusalem. And they watched him take the throne in Jerusalem. And people encountered him on the throne in Jerusalem. Jesus is king. On the other side of history, we're tethered to the hope that Jesus' reign will have no end, and he's coming again to make all things new. In the meantime, we do enjoy some precious treasures. We enjoy forgiveness of sins. We enjoy knowing that whatever happens to us in this life, Jesus is in control, and Jesus will raise us from the grave. Jesus is changing lives. Jesus has made us new people. These are some of the realities we can enjoy right now. They're worth singing about, celebrating. And yet we still sin, and this world is still broken. And there's things that break our hearts and make us weep. And life can be agonizing. We, like I said, we may be tempted to wonder, Jesus, are you really in control? Are you really king? that I want to study your hearts as we're closing that Jesus has promised to return in the last words of scripture behold I am coming soon amen come Lord Jesus let's pray Lord I pray that you would tether our hearts to the hope of the risen king that he is on the throne that no matter what happens in the storms of this life Jesus is an anchor for our souls and I pray that you would help us tether our hearts to the hope of the return of our King to make all things new. Lord, we don't have to figure out reasons for all the tragedies that happen. We don't know all things. We are so small and puny and finite. But you are big. You are immense. Your plan spans the, the scope of history. I pray that you would stir our hearts for where you are taking this world. You're going to make all things new. Pray that we would long for that, even as we live for you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.